0: Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark 14, just verses 22 through 26. 22 through 26 of Mark 14, this is God's holy and inspired word. Give your attention to the reading of it. Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take May bless it to us. Let us pray. So what does it take to change the calendar? That is, how do you add a new holiday and get rid of an old one? Well, this actually is not very easy. First, you need something big enough to celebrate and one that a vast majority of people all agree on. Next, there must be an old holiday that people care nothing for anymore that is easy to forget or reject so that everyone else can embrace the new holiday. Finally, if you did change the calendar, it would be a huge break with the past. For distinct calendars and holidays are key markers of different groups of people. They're lines in the sand. Thus, if you got rid of July 4th and replaced it with July 14th, Bastille Day, then you would be moving from America to France. Well, calendar is a big difference between God's Old Testament people and his New Testament church. To change from the holy days given at Sinai to something else would require something monumental, which is precisely what Jesus provides on the fateful night that he was betrayed. So it is the night before Passover, and everything is stirring. The whole city is a buzz with last-minute preparations. And there, in a nicely furnished upper room, are the twelve apostles and Jesus reclining around a table to enjoy a meal together. Now, we're not told about the food, but our Lord just mentioned the bitter dish of betrayal. One of his closest comrades in the gospel will stab our Savior in the back. And for such an ugly crime, there will be the most gruesome pun- judgments. This announcement of betrayal is like breaking the water pitcher right in the middle of the table. It's enough to spoil the dinner. However, the meal goes on, another course is served, consuming and conversing continues. And it should catch our attention how little interest Mark plays to the details of the dinner. He doesn't highlight any specifics of the meal, which is another hint that this is not the Passover meal. For as far as we know, the Passover was a very rigid ritual meal with explicit courses, songs, and prayers. But Mark mentions none of these. Rather, he's general, ambiguous. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. Again, there's no clarification if the bread is leavened or unleavened, if it's one loaf or just a piece, For none of this imagery is important. Rather, Jesus just grabs some bread. Next, he says a blessing. Jesus prays a thanksgiving to God for that bread. And he breaks the bread. Now, for us, we have a saying, let's break bread together, which means to share a meal. But this was not an idiom in the first century. To break bread didn't mean to eat together or to say a prayer Likewise, the breaking of bread was not an image of violence or death. Remember that the phrase broken body of Jesus is a phrase never found in Scripture. This phrase comes to us from a tradition found in the Middle Ages. Instead, to break bread means to share it, and so it is paired with he gave it to them. To break and to give is for Jesus to take a single piece of bread to break it up into little pieces so that everyone gets a piece. The primary imagery here is sharing one bread for many. Whether it is a large piece of bread or a loaf of bread, Jesus takes one chunk of bread and divides it up for each of the 12 to eat a piece. Generosity, multiplication, and unity are the colors of, Of this symbolic act of our Lord. Indeed, where Mark makes no reference to any Passover ceremony, he does recall the feeding of the 5,000. This taking, blessing, breaking, and giving is exactly what Jesus did when he multiplied bread in the wilderness for the massive crowd. In fact, we have numerous stories of Jesus eating and dining with all sorts of people in the Gospels. But Jesus never does this at any of those meals. Rather, this unique ritual of taking, blessing, and breaking only appears twice, the feedings and the supper. And as you'll recall from the feeding of the 5,000, there Jesus presented himself as the one who gives the true Bread of heaven. He made miracle bread in the desert as the true manna of heaven for everlasting life in Christ. From the one Jesus, many were fed. The event alluded to here is not Passover, but it's God giving manna in the wilderness. Next, Jesus identifies the bread with his body. This is my body. Of course, there's no magic or miracle going on here. The bread doesn't magically transform into Jesus' flesh. Rather, this is a symbolic statement. The bread represents his body. And this is the second time in a matter of a few verses that Jesus has talked about his body. He does here, and he did just the previous night, When the woman anointed him, Jesus said, she prepared my body for burial. By his body, Jesus refers to his death. He's talking about his death the following day, and he's teaching out the nature of his death. For as you know, not all deaths are the same. There are good deaths and bad ones. There are executions and martyrdoms. Deaths can be deserved or undeserved, accidental or purposeful, tragic losses, or welcomed ends. So what kind of death will Jesus taste? Well, his death is represented by the bread. It is one death for the benefit of many. His is a manna death, a gift from heaven that will supply the need for all of God's people. And the benefit of his death for us is the benefit of bread, which is what? Well, in the Old Testament, bread was never or never has the imagery of death. It is never associated with blood, violence, or a wounded body. No, instead, bread was the symbol of life and nourishment. Bread sustains the life of humans. For bread was the most or the basic fundamental of daily a daily nutritional diet. If you're from the Midwest, bread is your meat and potatoes. If you're from Korea, bread is your rice and kimchi. Bread was the standard staple for life for the Hebrews. For bread to represent Jesus' body given in death means his death is our life. Hence, Jesus adds the detail of eating. He says, take. He tells them, take, which again is shorthand for eating. The disciples uh, taste, chew, and consume the bread that represents his body. This is an act of nourishment. It imparts uh, and sustains life. Therefore, what is pictured here isn't so much the death of Christ, though this is represented, but the benefits of his death for us, for the many who trust in him. His one death is the bread for many. It grants and provides life for us. The death of Christ is God's gift of true life for all his people. As true manna, Christ's death is the heavenly bread For everlasting life. This is what Jesus is teaching by the bread. This is the nature and effect of his imminent death. This is what Jesus' death means for us, and it is what we celebrate and participate in every time we come to the table. Just as manna was an everyday miracle, so the supper is, as often as we do it, A miracle of grace for us, where we share in Christ's death as the very life we live. This is my body. Christ's one death is heavenly life for all who believe in him. Nevertheless, it's not just the bread that our Lord pays special attention to. He also takes interest in the cup. And again, note that none of the small details about the cup are important. Was it a bland cup made of wood? Was it a dented tin cup? Was it a beautiful silver goblet? It makes no difference. The only matter of significance is that it was a single cup. One glass is taken, given, and they all drink from the same cup. They didn't care about germs or bacteria, for the lips of each one touched and drank from the same cup as did the mouth of Jesus. The one for many imagery remains in the forefront here. Likewise, taking, blessing, and giving parallels the bread, and so generous provision, the fellowship and participation in Christ is also forefronted. To drink of the same cup is to be united to Christ, to fellowship with him, to receive from him his gifts. To sip from Christ's cup is to share in him. And yet, what is the symbolism found in the cup? Both Mark and Jesus underscore, at least at first, the cup itself and not what is inside of it. Well, in the Old Testament, the cup has two pri- primary symbolic values. First, there's the cup of salvation. Which is shared by worshipers in joy. This cup of wine was a libation. That is, you poured out part of the wine to the Lord along with the sacrifice, and then you got to drink the rest of it. To share in the cup of salvation was to benefit from the sacrifice, it was to rejoice in worship before the Lord. So to share his cup with us, Jesus is granting us the benefits of a sacrifice. He's bringing us into an act of worship and praise. Secondly, though, in the Old Testament, the cup often stood for the cup of wrath. It held the poison wine of God's wrath that had to be drunk down to the dregs. In fact, previously in Mark, Jesus referred to his cross as the cup that he had to drink. In a matter of moments, Jesus will pray, may this cup pass from me. The cup of wrath is the crucible of judgment swiftly approaching upon the cross. So which is it? Is this the cup of salvation or the goblet of fury? Well, Jesus goes on to explain, after each of the twelve took a swig, Jesus declared, this is my blood of the covenant. His focus moves from the cup to the contents of it. He links the red wine with his blood. The bread and body connection pointed to Jesus' death, but now the wine and blood link reveals the precise nature of his death. He died as a gift, and he dies as a sacrifice. This blood of the covenant refers to those sacrifices whereby a covenant is ratified and consecrated. Thus, this phrase Jesus pulls from Exodus 24, where the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated, was sacrificial blood. By his lifeblood, Jesus' death is creating and sealing a covenant. And since the Passover context has a sense of new beginning, this is a new covenant. This is not a renewal of the old Sinai covenant. It is not like the covenant that God swore to Israel when they came out of Egypt. For the blood offered here is different. It's not animal blood, but human blood. Even more, it's the crimson vital fluid of the Son of God. New and better blood fashions a new and better covenant. And yet our Lord gets even more precise. The bread pointed to his death, but there are many types of death. The cup cup clarified his death as a sacrifice, even a covenant ratifying sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, there are several types of sacrifice, each one doing something a little different. And so now Jesus adds, which is poured out for many. The various kinds of sacrifice under Moses each had their distinct blood rite. How the priest manipulated the blood indicated the type of sacrifice. And this blood rite of pouring out belongs to the purification offering or the sin offering. It was the sacrifice chiefly concerned with appeasing God And earning the sinner forgiveness. For the blood of Christ to be poured out indicates he's dying for our sin. His blood that ratifies a new covenant also takes away our sin. It purifies us from being defiled to being holy. Thus Matthew makes explicit what is implicit here in Mark. As Matthew adds, poured out for the forgiveness of sin." And this is so much greater than the covenant of Moses. Those covenant sacrifices of the Mosaic there in Exodus 24 did not deal with sin. Rather, that blood consecrated the people's oath to obey the whole law. The Sinai blood legalized the oath to obey. But here Christ's blood pays for all our sin as we fail to obey. Additionally, as a sacrifice, Jesus indicates the dual value of the cup imagery. For him to die for sin is for Jesus to appease God's wrath to pay the defiling debt of sin. Thus, the cup is one of wrath for Jesus. It's agony and judgment for him. But as he hands it to us for the forgiveness of sins... It becomes the cup of salvation for us. What was wrath for Christ is joy for us. The fury he tasted is transformed into the flavors of salvation. Thus, Jesus tells us to drink the wine. We are to imbibe in the fermented blood of grapes. And this points to one of the primary values of wine in the Old Testament. Unlike bread, wine can symbolize death or bloodshed. But mostly, wine stood for God's gift to bring joy to the heart. Bread was the daily foodstuff, and wine was the daily drink. Bread sustained the body, and wine made the heart glad. Wine embodied joy, rejoicing. In greater quantities, wine was the drink of feasting and celebration. Therefore, in the cup of salvation, there was wine. In the bread, Jesus' death is our life, and in the wine, Jesus' sacrifice is the joy of worship and salvation. And with this, Jesus makes the supper for us a happy meal. In humility, we come knowing our sin. But we drink in the joy of forgiveness, in the happiness of atonement, and in the delight of reconciliation. The initial bitterness of wine might remind us of Christ's acidic goblet of wrath. But the sweet, warming aftertaste of wine imparts the joy of salvation. And this joyful character of the cup is teased out further in what our Lord says next. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Now, refer to wine as the fruit of the vine underlines its delights and pleasures. And so to abstain from wine was to humble oneself. It was an affliction. No wine meant no joy and all humiliation. Or particularly in context, this means Jesus will not eat the Passover meal the next day. Remember, Mark set everything up as preparations for the Passover, and the disciples were eager to eat the Passover with Jesus the following day. But Jesus says it's not for him. As all the Hebrews drink the wine of the Passover, Jesus will have none. While everyone else feasts, Jesus will fast. They will get tipsy but Jesus will be fully sober on the tree. Indeed, the only liquid to touch Jesus' lips after this will be vinegar to torment his final moments. The last cup he will drink is not wine, but the wrath of fire. However, our Lord's abstinence is not permanent. He isn't giving up wine to become a teetotaler. Instead, he goes without for a time until he drinks from the cup anew. Christ will imbibe wine once more again in the kingdom of God. He abstains on the cross but drinks anew in the kingdom. Now this, of course, points to the resurrection. To die without wine and then to drink again assumes new life, resurrection from the dead. The question is, though, when is this? Well, in this gospel, Mark does not complete this theme. But from the rest of scripture, it's clear that Jesus drinks again of the cup with his people in the celebration of the sacrament. After the resurrection, Jesus broke bread and he drank wine with his disciples and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And so also with us. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus is in his kingdom. And as we come together to eat the Lord's Supper, Christ is present with us. He dines with us. He feeds us with the bread and wine. By the Spirit and through faith, we eat of the bread that is Christ's body. And we drink of the cup of his salvation. Therefore, as Jesus institutes this sacrament on the eve of Passover, as he will not eat Passover ever again, but die as the sacrifice for sin, so Jesus is making a calendar change. By his death, Jesus fulfills Passover and all the other Old Testament sacrifices in order to do away with them as holy days of the covenant. And our Lord starts a new covenant rite to replace those of old. He gives us the Lord's Supper, our fellowship and communion with Him and His death. Christ gives us the new covenant meal that is not once per year, but as often as we come together in His name every Lord's day. Besides, in addition to revealing the nature of Christ's death, bread and wine show forth joyful daily nourishment. A frequent celebration of the supper is built into its very imagery. As the Hebrews of old were sustained daily by bread and wine, so we live spiritually by the body and blood of Jesus given to us. Like heavenly manna, the miracle of the supper is often regular and continually. We fast during the week, but we eat on the Lord's day at the Lord's supper. Nevertheless, even though Jesus' drinking of the wine anew in his kingdom is fulfilled in the Lord's supper, there is an aspect of this that hints at a greater feast, a more joyous and perfect occasion. The picture of Jesus eating and drinking in the kingdom especially evokes that great and final feast in the Supper of the Lamb. Yes, there is a feast that Jesus yet waits to eat, our marriage banquet with him in heaven. So also, as it says, we celebrate the Lord's Supper to proclaim Christ's death until he comes Again. At the supper, we look back and we look forward. We look back in joy and faith to participate in Christ's death for our salvation, and we look forward in hope and love to the day when we'll see Christ face to face and recline before him at that messianic banquet table in the heavenly Mount Zion. Therefore, dear saints, This is what Christ did for you. This is his body given for you. This is his blood poured out for you. And this is the sacrament of the supper for your joyous spiritual nourishment. Let us give thanks and praise to our Lord Jesus Christ for his covenant blood, for his forgiveness, and for this wonderful sacrament whereby we live in him and by him, now and for eternity. Amen. Let us pray.